Kirby Hellman, and welcome to Second Sunday Books, where we talk to different authors about their latest books and their plans and the writing uh, process and all those fine things. I'm really happy to be with you today at this moment. It is the new year and um, the new decade, and so we must celebrate because I don't know about you guys, but 2019 was not my favorite year. And I'm hoping if things go the right way, that 2020 will be. And speaking of 2020, my guest tonight is the wonderful author, Alan Eskins. He is the USA Today bestselling author of The Life We Bury and five other novels, most recently The Shadows We Hide. He's the recipient of the Barry Award, the Rosebud Award, the Minnesota Book Award, and the Silver Falchion Award, Falchion, Falchion, and has been a finalist for the Edgar, the Thriller Award, and the Anthony Award. His debut novel, The Life We Bury, has been published in 26 languages and is in development for a feature film. Eskin lives with his wife, Jolie, in Minnesota, where he was a criminal defense attorney for 25 years. His latest book, which did come out in November, is called Nothing More Dangerous, and if you haven't read it, you really do need to read it. It is a wonderful story, and it's written beautifully, and welcome, Alan. I'm really happy to be here, Libby. We are happy to have you. So um, I remember you telling me, and, and you said this, that this book was started 27 years ago. <laughs> Can you tell us a little more about what happened in the interval? Sure. Uh, so I got out of law school, um, graduated in, in December of 91. And that following summer of 92, I felt that there was a, a side of me that was dying on the vine, which was my creative side. And that didn't so, take long. <laughs> I mean, being pardon a, me? Being, I said it didn't take long for you to... Uh, uh, have have your life sucked out by a law firm? <laughs> well, I, I was a theater major when I first went to college, and so oh, really? yeah. By the time I finished law school, um, I had gone. I switched my degree to journalism and then law, and so it had been a while since I'd gotten to do anything that was, you know, flexing that creative muscle. And so right. I started writing a short story about this 15-year-old boy. And I liked the kid, I liked the character, I liked the, the the idea, but I had never taken a creative writing class, so I didn't know what I was doing. So I started reading books on writing technique, and I did that for a few years, just reading books and adding to the story. And then I started taking classes, going to the Iowa Summer Writers Festival and the Loft Literary Center in Minneapolis, and mm-hmm. eventually I, I entered the MFA program at Minnesota State. So for 20 years. I was reading wow. books, I was studying, I was I was honing my skills, and I was trying to make this story better. And after Wait, 20 years... So, so before we go, was it set? I mean, what elements of the story as we're reading it today did you come up with 20 years ago? Or is any, is any of it um, similar to what you initially wrote? No, the, the book is basically the same story. Um, I added the 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 mystery of the missing woman was not as uh, as large a part of the novel in the initial mm-hmm. version. Um, but what was wrong with the initial version was I 
I was focusing so much on the protagonist, Bodhi, this 15-year-old boy, that I left out the development of the secondary characters. And uh-huh. so after 20 years, I set it aside. I wrote my other novels. And in writing those novels, I came to understand the importance of a couple things. Number one, outlining. I am an outliner. Um, and uh-huh. I, I did not outline that first draft of that 20-year-long excursion. Um, and the second thing was I, I learned the importance of the, the having a full understanding of all the characters, not just the protagonist. And so I went back and I outlined this story that I'd written, worked on for 20 years, and I wrote it from scratch, not looking at the previous manuscript because I didn't want to fall into traps that I had set for myself back when I really didn't understand writing as well. Very smart. And I wrote it from beginning to end, and when I finished it, I was in love with it um, and couldn't wait for it to, to see the light of day on store shelves. Mm-hmm. So, and, and when did you finish it? Uh, I submitted it to my publisher October of 2018, and oh, wow. then we then we did you know edits through the you know 2019, and it, it I think the final version my my final touch on it came sometime in June or July when I was doing the the proofreading. Mm-hmm. That's great. So Hoke was not a uh, was Hoke a character in the first version? Yes. Yeah. Um, okay. All the characters are the same. All the characters existed in the first version. Um, it's just that, and, and Hoke's story, uh, which is I think as important to the novel as Bodie's. So, for the listeners, Hoke is the next door neighbor of Bodie Sandin. So Bodie's this fifteen year old boy. He lives with his widowed mother. Um, his mother has never quite gotten over the death of, of Bodhi's father, so she's kind of a shell of who she used to be. But next door, there's this older man named Hoke, who is the mentor character of the story, and he has a backstory and he has a journey in this novel that was is as important as Bodhi's. And his backstory and journey was there in the, in the initial version. Um, mm-hmm. So all, the story is pretty much the same. It's just I went into depth in, for example, Bodhi's mother, her journey um, to, to she has a journey in this story that was not fleshed out in the first version. Um, there's some antagonistic characters. Their stories were not as fleshed out because I, I wasn't focusing on their characters as I was writing. Um, without spoilers, I do want to go back. I want to ask you something about uh, Bodhi's mother. Um, what was it? What uh, what was Thomas's mother's name? Rachel was that? Am I... uh, Jenna. Jenna. Okay. What was it about Jenna that brought um, Bodie's mother out? Jenna's role in the novel. Um, so so. Wait, wait, we should probably backtrack and... a little bit. Let's let's talk. I mean, I'm dumb, I, I'm jumping in, but tell us the yeah. premise of the story, and then we can go back to those questions. But, Good idea. So Bodhi is a 15-year-old boy in 1976 living in this small town in Missouri, and he is just fed up with his life. Um, He wants to run away when he turns 16. Um, He hates his school. He he feels lonely living on this dead-end dirt gravel road out in the middle of the country, out in the middle of the woods. Um, Like I said, he lives with his mother who, because she has never gotten over Bodhi's father's death, 
there's this coldness in the house that exists. And right. Bodhi just wants to, to leave all that behind. And his life has changed when a family moves in across the road. They move into this beautiful Victorian house, and that family is black, where Bodhi is white. And over the course of the summer of this novel, Bodhi starts to learn things about himself by seeing the world through the eyes of this young man who moved in across the road, Thomas. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I went back and I was, I was re-outlining this, I wanted each character to – I wanted to know what they – desired, what they wanted, what they feared. Um, I want to know what their motivation was. And Jenna's motivation is peacekeeper. She is trying to make things okay for her family because when Jenna and Thomas and Charles, the the black family, move in, uh, there's a lot of problems because Charles has taken over the management of a factory and because he's black, there's a lot of issues with that. And so Jenna's role is she's trying to be peacemaker. And one of the things she does as a peacemaker is she goes out of her way to befriend Bodhi's mother because she wants you know, Thomas and Bodhi's family to get along with her family. And she wants there to be, you know, like I said, peace. So she goes right. out of her way to make, make friends with Bodhi's mother. And Bodhi's mother has been living in this shell, basically. And just that reaching out the olive branch uh, starts to bring Bodhi's mother out of her shell, and she starts to to find who she was before she lost her husband. Yeah, that was really quite a quite a journey. I was intrigued by by that character and what Jenna did. Um, and I hope the dog is in a better mood. I hear him growling. Uh, yeah, he's. I have a one-eyed coonhound that uh, actually. Uh. In the novel, Grover is based right. on the dog you hear barking in the background. Right, right. You know, um, another th- thing I loved about the story was that Odie and Thomas, you know, they have a little rough patch at the beginning. But after they get themselves set and they become very good friends, there's really no talk, more talk about white versus black or racial racial issues while as the, the adults, on the other hand, are all about that. And, and I thought that was an interesting way, you know, to, the friendship of the two boys rather pure. Was that something that was really on your mind? It was. So the purpose of the – when Bodhi and Thomas first meet, um, Bodhi says some things that he doesn't realize are right. racist because right. of you know, his society and, and how he grew up. He thought these are just normal expressions. And once he realizes that misstep, he starts to step into that, you know, trying to develop that friendship more carefully. And that's the start of his starting to understand empathy. Is is he, he's he's trying to be careful with you know what he says around Thomas because he starts to realize that he has this this racial streak that he doesn't realize he has. Um, and so yeah, so so. Bodhi's being more careful because he really wants to be friends with Thomas, and and he wants he doesn't want to have that misstep again. Where the adults they're more set in their ways and their opinions, and they're less open to that empathetic role. Mm-hmm. Yep, absolutely. You have said, and um, it's been said in reviews that this is a more literary book than what you have previously written. 
Uh, were you conscious of of that as you were writing it, and and what specifically did you do differently when you were writing it? Well, when I Oops, think sorry. about literary as a, a, a genre, so to speak, or as a type of novel, um, I look at number one. There's there's deeper characters. Um, there's deeper character development, deeper relationships. A lot more of the story is based on the dynamics between the the people, as opposed to, you know, the missing woman of the the the, the mystery of a, of a novel. Um, also, a literary novel focuses more on deeper themes, and this novel was written specifically for me to explore my own growing up in Missouri and my own beliefs and opinions and notions of us and them. Um, and so even though it is considered a mystery, it's also considered a literary novel um, because there is a missing woman, and that missing woman is is there as a catalyst to tie the various threads of the novel together, but it's not the centerpiece of the novel. Right. So it's, it's really focusing on more on the relationships and on the, the deeper themes and, and, and deeper discussions. All right. Did you um t- did you grow up in a rural part of Minis- of Mi- of Missouri? I grew up outside of Jefferson City. So mm-hmm. the town is uh, it's like 50,000 people strong. Um but there was a, a strong racial current in that town. Mm-hmm. Um I had a a professor introduced me at an event here in Minnesota, and he had taught in Columbia, which is 30 miles north of Jefferson City. And when he introduced me, he says the best way to describe Columbia and Jefferson City is to say Columbia is on the north side of the Mason-Dixon line, Jefferson City is on the south side. Wow. Um, so, yeah, so there was a very, you know, at least I saw it, a very strong undercurrent of, of, of and again, it, it wasn't the overt racism. It wasn't like To Kill a Mockingbird, where, you know, it was people dividing into, you know, you can drink out of that fountain, but not this fountain. Um, it was very subtle, um, very understated, but there. And so there's a, there's a passage in the book where Bodhi is talking to Hulk early on, and he says, I'm not prejudiced. I think blacks can be just as good as whites if they try hard enough. And that <laughs> So yeah, that that's the form of of racism that I experienced growing up. Is is I really, if you ask me, I would say yeah, I, I'm not prejudiced. I have no racist bone in my body. But yet, mm-hmm. if you had a conversation with me, and like they did in the book, talking about um, whether black people can be quarterbacks, um, there was a de- you know a definite understanding that that um, black athletes made better running backs, not quarterbacks, because you had to be smarter to be a quarterback. I didn't realize growing up that that um, was a racist thought. It was just so well ingrained that everybody just kind of understood that. And then as I you know, went to went to college and started, you know, meeting more people, getting exposed to to other races and and other opinions, and I started realizing realizing just how backwards I thought when I was a kid. And that that was really why I wanted to write this book was just to explore that. Were there any parts when you when you said you, you started it completely over again and you wrote it from beginning to end, were there pl- 
places where you felt you had painted yourself into a corner or you needed to stop and kind of realign your direction? Or did it come pretty easily because you had outlined? I guess what I'm trying to say is what was the advantage of having the outline? Oh, I love outlining. Um, It's it's so important to my process um, because I don't paint myself into quarters because I daydream the entire novel. I I spend months, sometimes years, daydreaming about the the story before I sit down to write it. And by the time I sit down to write it, you, you and Jeffrey Deaver, he does that, too. Does he? I, he has an outline. He spends eight months on the outline, and the outline is often as long as the finished book. And then he spends three months writing it. Yeah, and that that works for me. Um, because you, I, I, when I sit down to write it, I have all these uh, – a list of plot points. Here's mm-hmm. how the story is going to lay out. Here's all the subplots. Here's you know all the – you know where the character development comes in. It's all laid out. Then I just sit down with my roadmap and I drive the road. And as I'm writing the the first draft, I'm describing what I'm seeing as I'm dri- driving down this road. So mm-hmm. um, it, it's a very important process for me. And I didn't I didn't have any um, because I had worked on this novel for 20 years. Um, the plot was pretty much in place. Um, I did make some changes, so I started writing the screenplay for this novel just as an exercise, and in doing that, I realized that there was some plot development that could have been um, more economically put in there, so I made those changes, because uh, when you write example, a screenplay, you have to be really you know economical with how you do things. Right. So, for um, example? I had, well, um there so there was a, a car that was found in the novel mm-hmm. and right. originally the finding of that car took place over a few different chapters and it was it, it was more convoluted in how it was discovered and so when i was writing the screenplay and i thought you know i i can be more economical about this it i it, it ended up in just one chapter um and so there's there's things like that that i i you know, I, I, I've, I've studied, I've studied um, screenwriting, and that has, I think, really helped my novel writing, because there's a lot of things that I learn as, as in the screenwriting that um, I w- wouldn't have thought of. Absolutely, I, I come from a film and TV background myself, and I, I found um, that what it helped me with is to know exactly when to cut in and to cut out of a scene. You know, because you know when to edit it in and when to edit it out. It also helped me with my dialogue because, yeah, uh, yeah. so those yeah, two things. When you go back and look at the novel after you've written the screenplay, mm-hmm. there are so many lines that are unnecessary in the novel. <laughs> so, um, that, And also emotion. I find that screenwriters really focus on the technique of making the audience feel emotion more than I think novelists do. And I really want to make people feel when they read my books. And so um, that's been very helpful. What, through through physical activity or by body language, by facial expressions? Uh, just the, um, like take a look at Pixar. Mm-hmm. They use techniques to make you feel 
sad about a robot named Wally, even though you know this is a cartoon, even though you know this is not true, Wally can bring tears to your eyes. Toy Story, um, uh, Finding Nemo, um, they give their characters, their protagonists, a worthy goal. Um, they early on in the, in the movie will um, give the audience a peek into who this character is by making the having the character you know the save the cat kind of moment do something that that connects you to them um so the key is making the reader step into the shoes of the character and you do that by giving the reader little moments here and there where they can say that is what I would do that's what that's how I would act that's that's me in this scene. And so mm-hmm. that is something that I think um, um, screenwriters really, really focus on in terms of trying to understand how to do that, where, you know, all the studying I did as, as a novelist, there wasn't as much of that, uh, especially in the, in the mystery genre. Um, there's a lot of focus on the intellectual aspect of solving a crime and, and keeping the tension up, but not as much focus on, you know, making the character, making the, engaging the reader in a way that makes them feel emotion. So if I had, if I asked you, which do you feel is more important plot or character, you would answer how? Neither. (laughs) I would say that the most important thing is tension, tension and Mm. conflict, obstacle Mm. or intention and obstacle character and plot serve that master. Um, Right. You can't have, character without a plot you can't have plot without character but you need to constantly be focusing on using those two tools character and plot to create tension and right. it's tension when, when when a reader says i couldn't put the book down it's not because you came up with a clever story it's because in your clever story you have created a constant level of tension and the reader subconsciously thinks if i just read one more page or one more chapter this tension will go away because these questions will be answered but then a, a good writer will add will will well, answer one more. question but create another one. Yeah. So right, exactly. Yeah, that's a great answer. Um, you kind of have an added benefit from being a criminal defense attorney for so long. How has it helped or has it in the writing of your crime novels? In the writing structure it hasn't helped in that um in law school and in journalism school, they, they kind of beat you into very direct declarative sentences, uh, which is antithetical to creative writing. Uh, in the first draft of Nothing More Dangerous, I bet there weren't more than five or six contractions. Uh, so you have this really? 15-year-old boy in Missouri who can't say can't or don't or won't because I had become so um, attuned to never using contractions. And so... Uh, I had to get over that. But on the other hand, when I'm writing a novel and I need a plot idea or I need to write about investigations, I don't have to research it because I've did, I did it for 25 years. I know how police investigations work. I know how evidence works. Um, I know how courtrooms work. That comes secondhand to me where I've got friends who I invite them to ask me questions on legal right. ideas. And the questions – are usually fairly basic, you know. What's the what, what's the probable cause level for a search warrant, or 
you know, can the prosecutor make someone take a polygraph? Those kind of things that are second nature to me, um, they have to research and, and work on. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you're okay. Now I know who to call the next time uh, I'm dealing with law enforcement. Yeah. So in your in your mastery of craft, and I say that, you know, this book, all of your books show mastery of craft, what would you say your strongest asset is? What do you think you do better than most or better than you expected you would do? Um, I think it is that aspect of trying to engage the reader and evoke emotion. Um, I had a teacher named Terry Davis who wrote Vision Quest. And he gave this lecture one time, and he walked in, and he just wrote the word evoke on the back. This is back when they had chalk, oh. chalkboard. Oh. And he, he just wrote evoke. Oh, and, evoke. And then we spent you know, the class period and, and after that talking about the importance of, of making the process of a novel. A, it's not just me telling a story to someone. It's me trying to bring them into the story. And understanding that the importance of that, um, you know, that set me on a path to trying to understand how that works, you know, and, and what are the techniques, what's the craft of doing that. And that is something that I think that, that I've, I'll never perfect it, but I'm getting, you know, better at it. And I think that's something that I focus on more than, than some of my peers. Yeah, that's really, that's, that's really an interesting comment. And of course, now I have to ask you, what do you, what would you like to do better? What do you think you you should be working on more? What aspect? Oh. Of I don't know. Everybody always says, um, "Oh, come on, <laughs> I, I I don't think that I seek to engender fear when I talk about engaging my readers with emotion. Um, I don't know. I, I think I am good with tension, but actual fear, I don't know that I uh, I do that as well as I might. Okay. Okay. Um, I'll go with that. Now, are you done with Bodie and his family and, and the Elgins, or are they going to come back someday, or do you not know? I do not know. Right now I would say I doubt that there would be another story about Bodie as a, as a child or as a, as a teenager. Um, mm-hmm. Bodie is in two of my other novels as an adult. He's a law professor. So He's a what? Wow, law professor. Wow. Yeah, so in, in The Heavens May Fall, in Life We Bury, Bodie is a secondary character. He's a minor character. Um, he's a law professor who helps um, with the Innocence Project in Minnesota. And then mm-hmm. The Heavens May Fall, he's the co-protagonist, and he, he goes back into the courtroom to defend somebody. And in The Heavens May Fall in particular, I put little Easter eggs in there about him growing up in Missouri and, you know, and his past in Missouri. And so um, this is actually a prequel for him. I, I love it. So I do, I do exactly the same thing. I mix and match my characters in each book and in, in each series. I have people showing up in different series um, because I like them. And I and I'm not finished with them, and I and I find some other aspect of their lives to explore. And I'm guessing you do the same thing. I I love doing that. Yeah. So, yeah, me too. So, as you're reading, um, nothing more dangerous. And Bodhi's 15 years old. There is part of his journey is going from in the beginning of the novel saying I'm too stupid to go to college to at the end of the novel thinking, you know, maybe I can go to college. That mm-hmm. evolution is what sets him on his path to becoming a law professor. 
Right. And then there is one comment about when he finished college, you know, at the end of the book that you, you yeah. put in. So that was like, yay, Bowie. All right. You made it. So tell me what you're working on now. Well, The Life We Bury, my debut novel, uh, the protagonist is Joe Talbert. And in that novel, he finds a girlfriend. Her name is Lila Nash. Uh, they're also together in The Shadows We Hide, which was my fifth novel. Uh, my seventh novel will be her story. So there mm-hmm. were aspects of what happened to her in her past that are laid out in those first two novels. This mm-hmm. novel is her chance to go back and deal with that past. Have you wit- written from a female point of view before, other than I? have not <laughs> so for the past year i've been on a steady diet of female authors writing female protagonists um, huh. and every now and again i'll throw in a male author with a female protagonist just to see how i think it compares um, and what have and you I'm, learned i'm curious i i've learned that a lot of male authors will have female protagonists make really stupid decisions mm-hmm. where female <laughs> authors do not. Um, I will not have a male save the day. Um, Good. I will not have scenes where my female protagonist swings from one emotion to the other, um, going from you know being angry to being in love to being sad to being happy. Um, I've, I've seen that. I, I will not write a female protagonist where it's basically a man, but I give a, a male character, but I've given her you know female genitalia. Um, I, I, right. I, I'm really trying to, you know, have this character. You know, there's going to be flaws, but she's going to yeah. be make, yep. making decisions that she comes up with, where she's she's the one who is the heroic figure in this in the story. Good. That sounds wonderful. Sounds exciting. So I'll trade you some law enforcement information for some female protagonist. <laughs> Got a deal. <laughs> um, I think our time is just about up, but it's been a real pleasure, Alan, talking to you, and and thanks for making the time. And all of you who are still listening out there, if you like, I said, if you have not read Nothing More Dangerous yet, and you can hear the hound in the background seconding what I'm saying. You really do need to read it because it is a book that once you get going, you won't be able to put it down, as I could not. So, Alan, thanks again for being with us. And Thank you. Listeners- it's my great pleasure. Oh, good. I'm glad. And uh, listeners, we will be back. Second Sunday Books will be back again next month. And I forgot to tell you before that this is a trademarked, copyrighted podcast solely owned by the Authors on the Air Network. Thanks a lot for being with us, and we'll see you real soon. 